If you will draw your attention to the book of Luke, chapter 7. We're going to read through this section of Scripture and look at it a little more closely. Verse 36, so then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And she stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee, had, uh, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he, uh, he forgave them freely. And he said, tell me, therefore, which of them would you, will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have said rightly. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with the fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom it is little forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves... Who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So one of the most, if not the most poignant, touching accounts that we have in our Bible in regards to the character and nature of Jesus. And we see how the character and nature of Jesus, when it touches someone or visit someone or comes near someone, how dramatically it changes that person. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, the transforming effect of forgiveness. The life that a person lives before Christ is a life of carrying much burden, the burden of sin. Many people may not even realize or are not able to connect what actually is going on. And 
one could even get used to the, the continual weight of sin that one carries. Along with that comes guilt, it comes shame. That's why so many people look for some way, many times diabolically, just to ease the pain or to make themselves feel a little bit better. But there's no way to escape this burden of sin. And so as we look at this account, we see someone carrying that weight of sin. Someone who knew they were, they were a sinner. Someone who was experiencing uh, that weight of sin and the guilt of sin. And a person who, until Jesus came, would feel trapped in their sin. Even religion was not able to help this woman. And so we too find that to embrace, accept, receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is to literally set one free. Is to change a person's affection. And so we see that carried out through this text. And as we get into it, it's just, it's, it's very important that we understand our true condition and our true nature before we come to Christ. And that is the message of the Bible to help us understand who we truly are as human beings, especially in light of God in relationship with God. And it starts out not pretty. It starts out very ugly in that the Bible says that we are actually dead in our trespasses of sins. Now, sure, we can do things as human beings, because we're alive in the flesh, we're alive in the material aspects of life. But, but before we come to Jesus, we're dead spiritually. And so because of that, we live our life according to the material things, according to our fleshly desires, and we think more in lines with uh, ways that are opposed to God. And it takes something outside of anything that we possess or we can do to get us out of that condition, and it's called forgiveness. Forgiveness then transforms us and changes our whole viewpoint on how we live life. I'm going to look at three things this morning. I'm sorry, four things if you're taking notes. We're going to look at how God's forgiveness and our accepting of that transforms who and what we worship. We're going to look at how forgiveness transforms our understanding of grace. We're going to look at how forgiveness understand, uh, transforms our understanding of love. And finally, how God's forgiveness transforms the peace that we have in our hearts. And so as we sort of dive in, let's just consider if you are a believer, if you are saved, let us just take a step of thanks and gratitude for what God has done and how he has set us free and how he's given us new life and how he's poured into us 
his salvation and his love, that we are truly people that are truly blessed. And because of that, like this woman in this account, the way we worship God changes. So we just had an opportunity to worship God in song. So worship, a lot of times we just think of it as the time on Sunday morning or Wednesday night before the message where many people think it's kind of a warm-up, kind of a pre-game thing. And that's not the way to think of it. Worship is really devoting our whole life to honoring God. So when you go to work tomorrow, if you go to work, you will go and worship God by how you conduct yourself at work, by how you interact with the people at your work. If you're at home taking care of kids or taking care of your household, you'll be worshiping God as you do that. If you're a student, as you go into those classes, you will be going in and your life will be worship. So worship is basically one's whole life given to God in surrender in such a way where a person demonstrates that God is the God of their life by everything that they do. That's what worship is. So God made human beings worshipful human beings. So instinctually woven into our human DNA is a desire to worship. So that means that if we're not worshiping God in spirit and in truth, then we will look for something else to worship, to devote our life to, to motivate us, something to give our life to. And if it's not God, it's going to be something diabolical. And there are different levels of that. There are things in society that they deem very acceptable to worship, like in our culture, work. And people say that person works so hard, but that can be an idol. Family can be even an idol if we prioritize our family above God. The Bible says to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. It says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And when we do that, all other relationships fall in place with that, and we do better in all those other relationships. But this woman, you, you notice, is so amazing to look at what she's doing. It breaks cultural barriers. It breaks pride. It breaks self-condemnation. It breaks hopelessness. And it brings about so much. So that let's just look at it a little more closely in the, this idea of how forgiveness changes the way we worship. So it, it says in verse 36 that, that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So the book of Luke has a reference, reference to Jesus and the Pharisees over 20 times, probably about 25 times or so. And in every one of those encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisee, it's all negative. 
So this Pharisee, which was uh, somebody, if, if you, you think about a Pharisee, think about somebody very religious. Someone that is following religious rules to the extent where they evaluate how good they are by how well they can keep religious rules. But they also evaluate how everybody else is by their ability, everybody else's ability to keep those religious rules. Even to the extent in Jesus' Jesus's time where those rules became more than scripture. So they valued man-made rules and traditions more than scripture. And that's why they had such a hard time with Jesus. So this Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner. Now, was he doing that because he wanted to bless Jesus? He thought Jesus was awesome. He uh, wanted to be a great host for Jesus. We don't know for sure, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems like he was bringing him over to either catch him in some sort of trap or get him to say something that he can say, see, I knew it. He's false. He's wrong. To get him to demonstrate maybe he broke the law in some way. But from what we see later, it doesn't seem like his intentions were noble, but yet... Jesus still comes. That's what's interesting. Jesus always puts himself in a place where he has the opportunity, regardless of what it may cost him, to share the truth and to show the truth. He wasn't one to shy away from confrontation if it meant that there was a person there that could possibly hear the truth and be set free by the truth. And if you sort of look at it from Jesus' perspective, having the ability to forgive people, think about how, I'll use the word anxious, not in the nervous anxious, but excited he was anytime he had the opportunity to go to a place and share, I can forgive you. Hey, you want to come over to dinner? Is this a trap? Is this... He didn't care about that. There, there, this is being opera. I can, I can actually forgive that person. And so I'm going to show up because I'm going I'm to go anywhere I can tell a person you could be forgiven. And Jesus would do that many times at a personal cost to himself. But he had this ability because he was God. And, and so he wanted people to be Forgiven, it was his heart's desire. That's why he came as a human being to the earth, because he wanted people to be forgiven. So he comes to the Pharisee's house and he sits down. And if you're going to understand this picture, you have to understand that they didn't eat dinner like us. So they would be sitting on the ground on these little cushions or couches, and there would be sort of a, a three tables in sort of a triclinium shape they would call it there would be one there would be two parallel tables and one table that would connect them so it'd, it'd be sort of like a u shape without the curves and they would sit at the table and they would lean on their left side and eat with their right hand so 
as they're sitting at this table, they're in this particular Pharisee's house. They're eating dinner and they're sharing and interacting. In verse 37, it says, this woman in the city, it says she was a sinner. What a terrible way. We don't know her name, just that she was a sinner. And the Bible just identifies her as this sinner lady. Probably, as we'll see later, she was probably a prostitute. We don't know that for sure. But when a female in their time was called a sinner like that, it was a euphemism for a prostitute. So we don't know that for sure, but she probably was. But regardless to say... People looked at her. She was notable. So it's unusual that she would show up there. It was notable this person was there. Now, why, why would she show up to the Pharisee's house? Because a, a Pharisee would have the, the attitude of everybody else that's not a Jew and not living like I live if I get too close to them, they can actually make me dirty. So they were separatists. And so this should stand out to us. That at the house of a Pharisee who notably knew who she was, and the religious people would keep her away, keep her at bay, stay away, get away, don't come near and she still came. What does that tell us? What kind of draw is Jesus? It was Jesus that drew her, not the Pharisee, not the dinner. It was the love of Jesus trumped this, the sinful legalism of the Pharisees. She somehow, some way, had been hearing about, maybe observing from a distance the things Jesus has been sort of traveling around and doing things. She probably heard in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, which puts that scripture, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and you will find rest. So that statement in Matthew was situa situated around this time in the time frame that was going on. So it's a good possibility she would hear him saying things like that. And again, as, as a, a prostitute who made her living, who used her body to capture souls and bring down marriages and bring down men, she would be doing the same thing to herself. And she was stuck but it was the love of God. It was the love of Jesus. And as we're going to see later, she knew that Jesus would forgive her if she would come. So this is something completely different. Even in our day and age, there's no other religion that has a merciful, loving, benevolent God. They're all false gods that are made up, but they're judging gods. 
They're not merciful and loving gods. So this is a, a very mind-blowing experience as we step into the scene to realize that this woman was willing to show up at dinner in a place where she would be ostracized, kicked out, pushed off, judged, probably spit on. And maybe there were even those there that were, had been in sin with her too. But she was drawn because it was the forgiveness that she believed or she knew that Jesus possessed. So that drew her to him regardless of the situation and the circumstances. So this sinner woman, it says, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Try saying that five times fast. So this suggests that she had pretty good money because the alabaster flask, it was from a specific stone in a city near Egypt. And it was that in itself was expensive, but it'd be just this little container that they would hold fragrant oils in. And those fragrant oils were very expensive as well. And once you broke the neck of this little vial of fragrant oil or perfume, it was, it was over. You couldn't keep using it. But she was ready because she was going to go to the one who she knew offered forgiveness. So in verse 38, it says she stood at Jesus' feet behind him. So now we have a better picture of how she could have done that. Jesus would have been leaning on his left side with his feet behind him, and he would be eating with his right hand. And she came up behind him, and she's weeping. So the question is, why, why was she weeping? Was she sad? Was she happy? Was she both? We don't, uh, we're not told here, but what we see later is that as she came to Jesus, she came because she knew he would forgive her as she came and she was overjoyed with the love and forgiveness of God that he offered her. She couldn't handle what was offered. So it was probably a, a mix of guilt released and joy, ecstatic joy at the same time and this eternal hope offered to her by Jesus. William MacDonald, uh, um, he's passed away now, but he was a theologian and author of the Believer's Bible Commentary, he said, it's not a disgrace to weep in the shadow of Calvary. The disgrace lies in not weeping. And I think he really nailed that down to the one who 
is embracing the understanding of forgiveness, God's forgiveness, unearned, unmerited forgiveness offered, especially when one knows their own sinful condition before God. Her response is weeping. That word weeping means uh, that she was continually weeping, that it wasn't stopping. So her tears were gushing out uncontrollably. She was overwhelmed by the emotion. And she began to actually wash his feet with her tears. So how much would one need to cry for you be, to be able to wash someone's feet? So she took her overwhelming feelings of joy and gratitude, and she actually used those as instruments to worship God. So some might say, and over, time, over the years in church history, there were thoughts of Christians and Christianity being stoic, non-emotional, purely intellectual, and that's not the case. That's not what we see in the Bible. She was overwhelmed by her emotions, but her emotions were all poured out in worship of God. Do you know that's how we use our emotions? Do you know that worshiping God is emotional? And if you're more of the, the front side of the mullet, all business, that may cause you to feel uncomfortable. Or if you feel crying's embarrassing, or crying is demoralizing, then I want to encourage you just to look at this. Because Christianity is not a, a stoic, emotionless religion. Christianity is a faith to where the followers of Christ adore Him and love Him so much all because of everything that He has done for them. And to grow in relationship with Jesus is to grow in an understanding of what He's done for us. And it's emotional. And these emotions, she's using them to actually wash Jesus' feet. Why was that important? Because in those days, they would wear sort of Birkenstocks or not quite flip-flops, but they would wear sandals. And the roads were mainly unpaved, dusty roads. So imagine going into someone's house and what a blessing it would be that that person that owned the house would simply just wash the feet of the person coming in. That's what they usually do. They would just have a small water basin and take a little bit of that water and just wash, rinse off a person's feet. But she did that with herself. She worshiped God with those emotions. She was overwhelmed 
by the understanding that she had that this man offers forgiveness. And so she's washing his feet with her tears, and then she takes her hair, which she probably would have had to unbound her hair because women in those times would not have their hair unbound. It would always be bound in public. So now it's just you have sort of a, a mess going on. She's crying and sobbing uncontrollably. And she's using those tears to go on Jesus' feet. And he would have had the dirt of his feet coming off. And then, I don't know, but probably spontaneously, she doesn't know what else to do. She doesn't have anything. She doesn't go through the proper procedure. She's not even invited here. She doesn't have a towel. So what does she do? She just unbounds her hair, big faux pas in that country, uh, that culture, but she doesn't care. She takes her hair and uses her hair as a towel. This is amazing. As she's doing this, that room would have filled up with the sweet-smelling aroma. This beautiful fragrance. That's what worship is. Worship is giving ourselves, so if we do want to look at it in the context of worship during a service musically, what is that? It's offering ourself to God and in a way where He is the object of our adoration and because of our love for Him, this is the way we show our love for Him. This is the way we pour out our feelings and our emotions towards God. We take that which is ours, and in gratitude we give it to Him. Why? Because He is worthy of everything that we have. If He is truly who the Bible says, then He would be worthy of us giving our whole life to. So we see the, the gravity of this event and what the other people around the table must have been thinking. They would have been shocked. What is going on here? But this sinner woman didn't care. And then as she's unbounding her hair and wiping her own tears with the dirt and everything that would be on Jesus' feet and as the fragrance would fill the room, then she begins to kiss his feet. Now, why would she do that? Because it would be custom when someone would enter a household to give them a holy kiss. That would be, in our culture, like a handshake. But this is her way of expressing her love for Jesus. And so we see how our worship changes when we receive God's forgiveness, when we understand our condition before God. 
and he just wipes away the debt. He wipes away the sin. He wipes away the guilt and the shame. And so he opens up the door then for us to worship him, and that's what's proper. That's heavy. And it calls for a lot of contemplation about our relationship with God and how we walk with God. The second thing that we find is this understanding of, of grace is offensive to a lot of people. In verse 39, so the Pharisee who had invited Jesus, he saw it. And like so many Pharisees in our day and age or legalists or religionists or moralists, people that think that their own righteousness is better than other people's. This is usually what's going on inside of them. So this, this is what's going on in the thought life of this Pharisee. It says he spoke to himself. Why did he speak to himself? He probably thought that's the only way he can get an intelligent conversation. So he spoke to himself and he said, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is. So inside, what is he doing? He's judging. This Pharisee is all at the same time, at the same dinner, is judging the woman, and he's judging Jesus all in the same taco. He's able to wrap this judgment all into one little thought. And he's thinking, man, this woman is horrible. She's a sinner. And now look at Jesus. And what he does is he starts to question who Jesus was. If he were a prophet, he says, he's questioning who Jesus was. So that gives us an idea that he invited Jesus over to judge him and question him. It didn't seem like he was open to understanding or the development of his understanding. It seemed like he came over and he was looking at him with a critical eye, looking to shake a finger at him. But in his cowardice, he couldn't do it outwardly. He's just doing that inwardly. But those sort of attitudes, they do not escape Jesus. So he's questioning who Jesus was. And then he questions what Jesus knows. And as he's doing that, he's all wrong. Because he's graceless. He has a theology or an understanding of God that is incorrect because it's an understanding of God without grace. And we can't understand God without grace. We can understand false gods and false religions without grace, but we can't understand God without grace. Why? Because it's simply by grace or what God does that saves us and not by what we do. That's why it's amazing. So this Pharisee had a religion that was based on his own righteousness. He didn't understand grace. 
He didn't give grace to other people. He didn't receive grace himself. He was graceless. And because he was graceless, he was merciless. And because he was merciless, he was completely out of touch with who God really was. And when one's out of touch with who God really is, they make bad decisions. They think wrong thoughts. They view their life in the world correctly. They view their relationship with God incorrectly. And they view their relationship with other people incorrectly. And this, can, this gets ugly. When we start having these sort of attitudes towards other people that come from the wrong attitude that we have with God. So then he says, if he would have known who this woman is and who's touching him, that she is a, a sinner. That's where we think that that's a, a, a word that they use for a prostitute. So now he's questioning Jesus's holiness. He's saying he's touching somebody who's bad. That's, that's basically what he's saying. He's getting close to somebody that's not religious. And you would probably picture a disdainful look on his face. You'd probably picture this sort of religious looking down upon. And that sort of attitude, we don't find that in the Bible ever in a positive way. It's always in a uh, condemnation type of way. And so we see then this woman, she was more holy and righteous than this religious Pharisee. Why? Well, let's take a look. Look at verse 40. So as he's saying this inside, he didn't say it out loud. Jesus knew it, though. And Jesus answered and said to Simon, Simon was the, the Pharisee, he says, I have something to say. And, and so he said, teacher, say it. So that tells us how he viewed Jesus, just as a teacher. And now he doesn't think he's a good teacher at all. He thinks he's a terrible teacher. He's probably questioning why he even let him in his house. So Jesus says to him, hey, look, Simon, there, were, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, so a denarii would be considered a day's wage. So 500 days of work or getting close to two years of work. So imagine owing someone an amount of money that's equivalent to almost two years of work. How does that feel? Imagine if, you've had a lot, if you have had or do have a lot of credit card debt. doesn't feel good especially if you don't have the ability to pay it off and you keep seeing it go up and you make your minimum payments, but it keeps going up. And it's, it's interesting how if you don't have a lot of money, then our culture seems to make it worse on you. It's easier if you have more money. Interest rates are lower. You don't get smacked with penalties. But if you're, you're carrying this debt around, imagine owing, owing this debt and then the, the creditor's calling you. The creditor's emailing you. The creditor's knocking at your house. And you don't have the money. And you're not going to get it because you don't have a good enough job. 
And in the case of this woman, imagine her thinking, uh, how many more men do I have to sleep with to pay this off? She's probably maxed out already. So Jesus, he paints this picture and he says, look, there's one that owes this much. And then he says, then there's another who owes 50. So that'd be like 50 days, uh, you know, more manageable, 50 days of wages. And Jesus in verse 42, he says, when they had nothing which to repay, that's the key. You might want to circle that. They had nothing to repay. So it, it didn't matter if you owed, really, if you owed 500 or 50, did it? If you don't have anything to pay, 50 seems as big as 500. It doesn't matter. One had more sins, but they both didn't have the ability to pay it off. So in, in essence, they're in the same boat. They're... they're, they're in the same position, there are two people with a debt, one greater than the other, but both had a debt and no ability to pay it off. So in verse 42, they says they had nothing to repay, and then it says he what? What did he do? He freely forgave them. He freely forgave them. Now, this is amazing. So if you just put that into practical terms, if you owed a lot of money on a credit card and somebody came along and just wiped out that debt, you would feel a sense of peace, wouldn't you? You'd feel a relief. You'd feel a burden come from you. But probably the one that had a bigger burden would feel more relief. So in verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom you forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, so imagine this scene now. The woman's there weeping, hair wiping, pouring out her expensive perfume, being condemned by those probably had uh, terrible looks of disdain. And Jesus turns to her in a way to communicate to Simon the Pharisee. And he says to Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? So he would have to look at the woman. He would want her to be seen. And he would want this prideful, self-righteous Pharisee to see her. And he says, Simon, when I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet. That was basic hospitality. That wasn't anything special or above. That was basic hospitality. I came in and you didn't even offer to wash my feet. And then he says, but this woman, she has washed my feet with her tears. See the contrast? You see a cold-hearted, calculated, religious, self-righteous man versus this broken, tender-hearted, loving, 
sinner woman who knows Jesus will forgive her. It's different. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not stopped to kiss my feet since I came in. So she must have still been doing that. You did not anoint my head with oil, which would be another minimal practice to greet somebody. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. And so he takes all of that and then he says, here's the point. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, they're forgiven. So that's why. That's the response. That's where faith really is. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be forgiven and then to live one's life in adoration of the one who has forgiven them. And when one lives their life like that, in close communion with God, he will direct that person's path and that path will lead to heaven and seeing Jesus face to face. Therefore, verse 37, I'm going to read again. I say to you, her sins, which are many, they are forgiven, for she loved much, but whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, did the Pharisee have less sins than the sinful woman? Probably not, if you were to look at his self-righteousness. And all. But from a worldly standpoint, it looked like he was more moral and more religious. But his morality and his religion, he was counting on that to save him. But this woman was counting on grace and mercy to save him because she realized she couldn't do anything to pay off her debt. And so it ends with this. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your what? Your faith has saved you. And then he says, go in peace. So that is the commission of Jesus to all who receive his forgiveness. He now tells us to go live your life in peace because your guilt and your shame is gone. Your burden is gone. You've been restored in relationship with me. So the power of God's forgiveness. So the question is, then, for all of us today is, have we received the forgiveness of Christ, first and foremost, for the forgiveness of our sins? Have we received His free gift that He offers, that He paid the price at the cross for our sins, and He says that all who come to Me will not perish but have eternal life? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Today is a day you can change all that by, like this woman, putting her faith in Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven, your load will be light, and your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. But maybe some of you here today are forgiven. 
you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but maybe you're walking and Satan has tempted you in guilt, in shame. And God doesn't want you to live like that because he's called you to peace. That is the characteristic of a believer who has peace with God. There's now no more condemnation. And so when we mess up and trip up, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sin to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us. And that's to restore fellowship. So maybe some of you here are stuck. Maybe some of you are just sitting in a place of sin or guilt from your sin or shame. And God says today, I've already set you free, so now walk in that freedom. No guilt, no shame, no separation, no condemnation. Walk in the newness of life and in fellowship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And I do pray, Lord, as we conclude this morning, that if anybody is here and has never received you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that now they would receive your free offer, your invitation to come to you. And those who are here who know they're disturbed and hurting and frustrated and confused and out of sorts, just like this woman in this account, I pray that they would know today that you are the answer, Lord. And you love them so much. You showed your love for them by dying on the cross for them. I pray now by your Holy Spirit, you would minister that word to the hearts here. And Lord, I pray for those who are believers now. I pray that they would take a step of faith at this moment right now and just ask you to forgive them of their sins. There's some sin that's keeping them from full fellowship with you that today they would receive a bath of forgiveness, a new bath, Lord, that you'd wash them clean and restore that fellowship, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's all stand, and if anybody this morning would like prayer about anything, as we sing this last song, just feel free to come forward. We'll have our prayer team come up. And um, God is so good doesn't want you to continue out of your fellowship with him. So this morning, these uh, wonderful people are here to pray for you if you need prayer. You just cry out to Jesus right at your seat. And I don't want to just rush through this last moment because I really do pray that the character of our church will continually change to be more like this woman. Broken, forgiven, thankful, rejoicing people that love him because he first loved us. And there's so much noise, there's so much chaos in regards to evangelical Christianity and all these things. And I just want to pray that we just bring it back to the word of God and the love of God and keep it simple and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to work in each individual's life. And so can we just, as a church body, just pray for that, that the character of our church would be like
this sinning, forgiven woman. So let's worship the Lord. God bless you guys. Have a great week. And uh, God is good. Let's worship the Lord.